I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. On today's Intersectionality Matters, I'm delighted to welcome W. Kamal Bell to the podcast. Kamal has been one of my favorite comedians, filmmakers, and cultural commentators for a number of years. He's hosted the CNN series United Shades of America since 2016. He's hosted FXX television series Totally Biased. He's currently the host of the live radio show and podcast Kamal Bell right now, and also co-hosts the podcast Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period, with Kevin Avery and Politically React. I mean, I could go on and on. Most recently, he's directed and produced the new documentary miniseries, We Need to Talk About Cosby. That was featured at the Sundance Film Festival, which I was lucky to be able to see in advance of its showing on Showtime. Welcome, Kamal. I'm very excited to finally get a chance to get you on the podcast. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm more excited to be here than you're excited to have me. And you're not going to tell the people that you're going to be in an upcoming episode of United Shades of America? Well, I kind of wanted you to say that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm so excited about that. And we want to talk a little bit of, uh, about that towards the end. But let's jump into this four-part series um, that you did. Now, first of all, I know a lot of people thought... Is there anything new under the sun to say about Cosby? And yet the whole frame is, we need to talk about Cosby. A lot of people thought that's all we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So take us back to when you settled on the idea that there was still something more that needed to be said. What prompted it? What were you hoping to engage that hadn't been put into the mix so far? I mean, for me, I think this started well before I ever had even an inkling that I would be offered the opportunity to direct something like this. For me, it was like, you know, you talked about how I was the show totally biased that I was on. So when I started doing that show, that was my first big break in showbiz. It was 2012 and it was before the Hannibal Burris joke, but it was also there were stories out about Cosby and sexual assault and rape. And so I would get asked by media members, because this is what they ask every comedian who's new to them, mm. who are your favorite comedians growing up? Mm. And I was like, I'm a black dude of the age where it'd be weird if I didn't say Bill Cosby. And so what I started to say at the time, which felt clever, the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby is what I would say. <laughs> to sort of go, I have to say Bill Cosby, but I want to let you know that I understand it's not that simple anymore. But yeah, yeah. that was really where the idea started, because it was like, I recognized I can't take the the good things that he did for me out of my body. I can't sort of take them out of my cultural DNA. They're embedded in there and they have led me to do good things, I think, in my career and in my life. But I can't deny the truth of these survivor stories that I now understand. But it feels like there was no place to have all of that conversation. Mm, like, mm -hmm. you know, we often talk about separating art from the artist, but it's easier with a lot of people. One, because Sometimes their their crimes aren't that bad or they're not crimes at all. They're just jerks, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I think it's somebody like, uh, you know, I, I was going to start naming people. I won't do that. But, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but then also a lot of times the art is just, oh, I like their movie or their song. It's not as like loaded and weighted as Cosby's whole persona of like, you need to be smart. You need to do good. You need to uplift your race. It's not as like, it's not as embedded as just like, oh, I like that musician's song and now that musician is canceled or whatever. Mm -hmm, not, that we, mm -hmm, not that I believe mm -hmm. in cancellation, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So this was an opportunity to speak to, I guess, the contradictions mm -hmm. that are still so much part of the story. Not, not just the story of celebrity did bad, 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 mm -hmm. but celebrity who we loved, mm -hmm. who had a particular persona, not only did bad, but part of that persona 
is part of the reason why the bad he did was possible mm-hmm. and why it was an open secret for so long. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a fuller part of the story. Yes. Yes. That's, I mean, that's the thing. I think it's, it's as I, you know, the two documentaries that inspired me to do this, one of them is that is surviving R. Kelly by dream Hampton. And to me, when you watch that, that is like really focused on celebrity did bad because he was still out there walking the streets and hadn't, hadn't been held accountable for these crimes. And yeah. so there's really a sense of that, like, not just don't just watch this talk about it spread the word help us figure this out help us help us free these women help us capture this man and so that really felt like it needed to be that way it needed to mm-hmm. be like we, we were all sort of being invited by dream to be a part of the solving the case or catching r kelly but like then i look at like uh ezra edelman's oj simpson made in america by the time he did that oj was in jail for something else and it felt like this is settled law. Let's just look back and figure out how we got here. You know what I mean? So I think that those two things were like the Cosby doc lives somewhere in here where when we started filming, he was in prison. It felt like this case was settled, but it also felt like we haven't really investigated as a culture, these women's stories. And I think a way into those women's stories is to talk about why it's hard to talk about it is because he meant so much or means so much to so many of us, specifically black folks. That's a that's a great sort of bookend, the the OJ and then the R. Kelly. I mean, the R. Kelly one, another piece of it, and I, I love the way you framed it, it was sort of a open case that was demanding resolution. And it was also an open and notorious performance. Um, mm-hmm. The Cosby story is kind of right there, you know, in the sweet spot. So Mm -hmm. like you said, the rumors had been around for a long time, but he was on such a different level. It wasn't like he was performing like he was a rapist or it wasn't like he was trying to be a player. He was the opposite of that. So here you have the story of how people put it together. So prior to you taking up this documentary, what had your exposure been to the overall issue of sexual abuse? I mean, I think it's interesting. Most of my exposure to that, I mean, I certainly have talked to women in my life. One of my best friends used to be a rape crisis counselor. And we didn't have, we have I'm not saying we had a lot of conversations about it, but we did have conversations about what that work is. So I started to understand in a different way. I certainly, my mom, you know, my mom was a, a survived sexual assault as a, at a young age. And so we talked, she's very open about that. So mm-hmm. I have, but I wouldn't say I had deep dive conversations about it actually until I started hosting United Shades where there would be, there would be times in the show where it would come up. So we did a segment about murdered, missing indigenous women on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done segments about sexual assault on the show. So there's this thing where I was suddenly in these conversations on television, learning in real time and, and I think I really do credit Dream Hampton. That documentary I watched like it was like it was homework. Mm. Like I really was like I had no idea. I didn't know about grooming. I didn't know about it. I didn't know the links to which a predator would would sort of like create the circumstances in which he can be a predator. And also being a comedian, I lived through the Me Too era where it was like comedians were sort of falling because of their because of sexual activities. So it was definitely like in my industry that talk started happening about like what what are we doing about this? So, you know, you had uh, one of my good friends on the show. We were also on a, a documentary about Russell Simmons, uh, Karen yes. Mayo, and yes. she just she just nailed it when she talked about, you know, there are two runaway forces of oppression uh, mm-hmm. in America, you know, mm-hmm. the way non-whites have been treated and then the way women have been treated. And you have this character Bill Cosby, who has advanced one piece of that mm-hmm. and at the same time, you know, has contributed to the misery uh, of women on the other side of it. So it's a it's a dual narrative that's running at the same time. And one of the things, of course, that we're interested in is the overlap between those yes. things, the intersections yes. of it ergo intersectionality matters so you know i thought it was such a marvelous way of telling an intersectional story i always struggle with how to do it how do we talk about the complicated backdrop that creates both the the solidarities 
that we see play out, not just with Bill Cosby, but you know, many well-known African-American men who've been accused of doing something. How do we tell the backdrop of why that solidarity happens, but also concretize the consequences of that solidarity? So how did you come to the structure of it that allowed you to bring the viewers and some of the viewers having no knowledge really of the Bill Cosby I grew up on. I mean, way before it was, yeah. you know, the, the Cosby show for me was his second or third career. I knew that's him. my mom is my mom. I'm sure my mom is way older than you, but she felt the same way. She was like, by the time he got the Cosby show, she's like, Oh, they're giving him another chance. <laughs> right? Whereas I was like, my favorite comedian got a TV show. She was like, this is about his third or fourth TV show. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time, I think, you know, episode one really went into, you know, the Cosby that many people don't know, the glass ceiling breaker. Why was that important for people to see? So for me, I think a lot of this does come from the the ways in which I like to take in media. So I'm a person who's like watching, especially with documentaries, watching it with my phone, Googling things as I'm like, I'm like, wait, wait, who is that? Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Wait, what year was that? Like, I'm really actively like trying to figure out, I'm pausing the thing. My wife is annoyed to watch TV with me because I'm always pausing and like, you know, so as I'm like, wait, let me see what, uh, so that's just the way I like to take media and the OJ doc. I thought one of the great successes of the OJ doc was that it sort of established, we're going to talk about this man's criminal history very early on. And then with very deft editing and direction, about 20 minutes in, you were watching OJ break tackles in college. And you're like, man, he was good. Mm -hmm. And your brain goes, wait, why am I, like, why, why am, I for, am I forgetting about the part, the crime? And you go, and, and the doc is like, no, 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 we'll get there. But we want to lead you through this story. So for me, I really always felt like that was a good blueprint of like, if I can get you to sort of see, to sort of like the opening of the doc is really key, I think, of our doc in that. It's like we ask a bunch of people, who is Bill Cosby now? And all those sighs and sort of like deep breaths and squirms, because I've noticed that as I interviewed people, like that's what would happen. And I sort of was very like, we need to use that. We need to use those squirms and those sighs. And what it does, I think, is it buys us time to go, we're going to talk about his whole career. We're going to start at the beginning. You're going to see stuff about how good he, the good he did. But that cold open, let you know we're going to get there. We're going to get to the other stuff. Relax and listen and look. Yes. We're going to get yes. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that it's like I, when I started doing the research into this, discovered things that I didn't know about Bill Cosby's past. What's one of the most surprising things that you didn't know? I mean, even before, again, before I even thought somebody would uh, sort of uh, give me the reins to do a doc like this, when I learned about uh, Noni Robinson's documentary about the history of black stunt performers and yes, how Bill yes. Cosby was like the singular figure to integrate uh, stunt performers. And nobody knew this story. Like we asked people in the whole doc, like, did you know this story? That many people don't know the story and that her doc was in jeopardy because of the fact that she had interviewed Bill Cosby for two hours and she didn't know how to what to do with that interview and how to use it in the doc. And I was like, we're going to lose history here if we don't, if we can't figure out a way to tell these stories. So for me... The fact that he that Bill Cosby integrated the black stunt industry and never really sought didn't seem to have sought credit for it. Mm -hmm. And he's yeah. a guy who definitely wanted credit for the good work he did at some point. But right. it was just for, like he really revolutionized Hollywood and just sort of kept it moving, which I just think, again, makes the story more complicated. And well, it does, because I think there is a sensibility now from some critics that sees all of the stuff that he did as purely performative, just mm -hmm. just cover and and. You know, one can understand why some people might see it that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I understood that some people may not have even wanted to participate in the in the documentary because it does elevate some of this, yes. you know, story that really shows the trailblazer he was and how he really remade certain aspects of Hollywood. But it is an important part of the story. Yeah, it is an important part of the story. And I think that, like, if you're going to have... I feel like this. I thought I started to think about the doc the more we got into it as if I was to have a dinner party at my house and invited people I knew, people I wanted to meet, people I respected, and somebody said, what do you guys think about Bill Cosby? That this would be the conversation these people would have had. That you'd have your mm -hmm. one friend who was like, I remember these shows. You might have a friend who's like, I was a stuntman on the shows. And you might have the one guy who's like, I don't really care about Bill Cosby, but I know a lot about drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, <laughs> the idea being that like, this is the kind of conversation 
that we often have in life in our, with our people, where it's a wide-ranging conversation, where nobody's really judging anybody's participation in it, and also we know that this person knows more about this, so I'm going to let that person talk, and this person knows more about this, so I'm going to let that person talk, and also there might be conflicting viewpoints, but we all respect each other. It's like the group chat, you know what yes, I mean? We all respect each right. other in this circle. And I would also say that one of the most important things that this also brought to it is the multiple gazes upon which the story is, is seen and received. So a lot of the other coverage is sort of just starting with Bill Cosby, the icon, not starting mm -hmm. with Bill Cosby, the person for whom everybody in Black America would drop everything mm -hmm. when colored on TV. You know, was, yeah, I remember when um, I Spy came on, you just didn't do anything that night. You built your whole day around the fact that we have to be sitting in front of that TV when this colored on TV comes on, Bill Cosby. So, you know, I really appreciated being taken back. First of all, it gave me some great memories of being with my parents, just having a ball. So the, the investment was real and taking us back to that you know, it was very real. Yes. The Jello commercials and the pudding and Texas just, Instruments, Coca-Cola. Everything, everything. Back then it was like the fact a black man was trusted with some of America's biggest brands felt like an achievement. Not like he was, there was no talk of he sold out. It was like he won. And right. if he's winning, I might not win, but he's winning on my behalf. Yes, yes. And then to come back and talk about black institutions to actually have a different world as part of the, you know, Cosby universe. My mom was a graduate of Howard. And for her, watching this family produce these kids that go to college, and she was a race woman, but she also very much took the narrative of, you know, upward mobility through education, like as gospel. Yes. Now, what was also fascinating is you had the timeline underneath that. Yes. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that and, and what you were hoping to yeah. keep front and center in doing that. For me, like, it was very clear that, like, how do you keep track of these women and really give the scope of the story the space it needs? And when I entered into this doc, I didn't understand that his that the first accusations of sex, of rape were from so early in his career. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us, even people who believe the survivors, think it all happened in the 80s or think the bulk of it happened in the 80s. But really, it just picked up in the 80s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like, if you tell the story of his career and you just keep interspersing in sexual assaults, you can't really build up any momentum and it becomes like whiplash. Mm -hmm. How do you tell a version of the story and then go, now let's, go, I felt like you need to go, now let's go back and tell you what also is happening. Yeah. And yeah. it really felt like at the end of episode one, just when you think you've sort of experienced all the whiplash you're going to experience, we dropped the timeline in there. Yeah, I thought that was so, so smart because it, it even did it to me. So I heard about some of this stuff before, you know, Hannibal Burris, um, probably, I don't know, a good decade before, but even I didn't know it went all the way back, you know, to the 60s. So I thought that it was just a fascinating moment for all of us. Some people had it more recently, but we all had the, oh, wait, wow, this guy that we are celebrating and, you know, I was sitting there thinking he was so cool, was not cool even then. And it makes you have to deal with, you don't have an easy resort to say, well, the, the guy he used to be, you know, mm -hmm. the guy that I loved, he's not yeah. that anymore. You know, you got to deal with the fact that the that the character that you loved at the same time was doing monstrous things. Mm -hmm. And that messes with your head. I, yes. I'm still not sure if I've been able to fully integrate it. I completely believe it. I think I know this to be true as much as I can, not having been there. And yet there's still a part of me when I listen to his old jokes or when I see him mugging on TV with the kids, it's just hard to say that guy probably mm -hmm. walked off that set mm -hmm. and probably dropped a quaalude on someone. Or made some woman feel uncomfortable or yeah. made some woman feel like she had to like, I mean, there, I've heard many stories since the doc has come out on social media things saying like, I worked on this set and he tried, but I got away. Or everybody knew stay clear don't let the female producers go over there like there was just sort of like a way in which many in the industry understood as you did maybe didn't understand the depths of it but understood that he was out for women at all times and then had to sort of protect the women around them and obviously did not protect enough of them 
And so for mm-hmm. me, it was like that. There's just a sense that he was always on some version of the make. And I think the the challenge here is that a lot of that I think gets filed under for a lot of people infidelity. Yes, because they're not seeing the rape part of it, and those women aren't speaking up because they've been blamed and shamed, as Lily Bernard says, to not speak up. The big question for a lot of people is why now? Did you call anyone? Do you call the police? Do you tell a girlfriend? Do you tell your mother? Do you tell why anyone? Why have you waited so long? You took the pill, you drank the alcohol, and you put yourself in a position to be close to him again. Why would you do that? What were you doing to take that drink? What were you doing there at 2 a.m.? That's rape culture. In Hollywood, there's not the same moral judgment about infidelity as there might be at your office if you're not in Hollywood. So I think that a lot of it is like, there's also a culture of men being like that. And we sort of talk about that in the 60s when we show clips from movies of like James Bond smacking a woman on the on the butt and then saying it's man talk. And, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the hero of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, so he was in a culture that was doing a lot of this Lothario boys will be boys thing. And a lot of that was disguising more than infidelity. And a lot of it blaming the victim as well. Like yes. you go after them. You want to be with the celebrity. Yes. You know, not taking into account the age of some of these women, the trust that they generated. It was a prior to the Me Too moment mm-hmm. where the rape culture narratives were not yet fully legible, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. people. I mean, not even saying they are now, but there wasn't even the standard way in which we were able to say, no, you can't blame women for being drugged. There's the idea that rape was just a stranger jumping out of a dark alley at a Bible, at a white blonde Bible study student. (laughs) Like like not not even, you know, like just a specific type of white lady. Even that woman's not going to get the healing and care she needs and justice because what did she do to really initiate that? Even the Bible yeah, study statement, yeah. you know. And, you know, at, at this very time, the law itself was undergoing reform. So a lot of people don't realize that in many states, rape is defined as your willful resistance being overcome. Yes. Uh, so it's an open question of, well, if you willingly took a pill, yeah, <laughs> right? Yes, so yeah. you could not resist. Is that really rape? So, you know, the way that the culture has moved is sort of a backdrop, mm-hmm. you know, to the documentary. Were, were you surprised, Kamal, about how challenging it was or some of the people who didn't want to speak? Initially, I was, because, like I said, we started this when Cosby was in prison, and I sort of thought, it's kind of like the OJ thing, well, this is settled law now, he's in prison for it. People will now maybe have the ability or the interest to come out and talk about their version of the story, because he's in prison for it now. Now that Grandpa's not here anymore, let's talk about Grandpa, basically. So, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, that person said no. All right, well, that person said no. Okay, that person said uh, wait a minute, <laughs> and, then became, and then that person said yes, and then decided said no. That person said maybe, and I felt good about the conversation. And then they said no. That person said yes, and then I stopped hearing from them. You know what I mean? Like so, there was just all these different levels of like. Not that we didn't get anybody, but we didn't get many of the people we thought we were going to get. And I had some good conversations with some of those people who said no. And at the end of the day, it just became clear. And this is again before you got out of prison that it was just like if you are a black person in media, if you're anybody over the age of like say 45 the bill cosby conversation is complicated even for a white person because you still had some level of like love for him at some point mm-hmm, most likely mm-hmm. and then if you're a black person in media and if you're a black person who in media who worked with him directly it just gets more and more complicated to talk about it because and you know lily bernard i think really had one of the key bites of the whole piece lily bernard was a featured player on a, an episode of the cosby show uh and as a survivor and is still able to recognize the Cosby show because of Bill Cosby hired black people behind the scenes. And a lot of those black people still trace their first jobs in show business and their whole making show business to those jobs. And a lot of those were black women. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's again, that disconnect you talk about, about, okay, this black woman over here is like, I wouldn't have the career I have in show business. If Bill Cosby didn't hire me, this black woman over here is like, he hired me and he raped me. And then it becomes about people trying to do the math of like, who do I believe when it's like, both these things can be true. What made you fearless about doing it? Who said I'm fearless? <laughs> <laughs> so how are you handling that fear? That, <laughs> I mean, yeah. How did you handle it? I mean, you know, because you know, uh, it was a choice. I mean, it's you... a, yeah, no, it's definitely a choice. It was not a court ordered. Right. You know, I wasn't put up to this by a white show business, as I've read on some of my comments. Yeah, so, uh, so list some of the things that get said and and uh, or some of the stuff that you're like, really, I mean, you're going to go there? OK. Well, I mean, I some of the stuff as a comedian, I'm a good writer, so I can imagine all the I can imagine a lot of the things before they show up. So, you know, the YouTube algorithm knows I was watching videos about Bill Cosby 
and it knows I'm W. Kamau Bell. So I got sent a, a couple videos where the videos were titled, We Need to Talk About W. Kamau Bell. And I was like, Oh, whoa. Some of the comedy outlets on YouTube that I actually watch and pay attention to, black comedy outlets, I'll say. Yeah. You know, you'd see things like the, the question that answers your own question Is W. Kamau Bell a sellout? Oh, boy. There you <laughs> have like, it. Is, there is. You have it. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, just like my Instagram comments, but my favorite is there was some guy who was just posting, the raccoon emoji over and over again oh under my uh, under my gosh. under comments just over yeah. and over again, but it's like I've tried to steer clear of. I, I knew it was coming. I I always knew that the people who hated the doc the most would be the ones who never saw it. Is it worse than you thought it was going to be, or pretty much what you thought? Oh, I imagined it. Way, I mean, not, I'm not saying I'm not challenging anybody to make it worse, but <laughs> I have a very vivid imagination. So I, the, when I was a kid, I used to read this like comic strips in the newspaper all the time. There was a comic strip called Bafo. And it's a it's a guy floating in a block of ice in the middle of space. And he's saying to himself, and they said, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, my brain is always going to put me in a block of ice floating in the middle of space. Like, how did it get this bad? Like, so I'm yeah. always like imagining how bad it could get as a way to sort of deal with however bad it is. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a part in it where um, one of your interviewees says something like this is what happens when black protectionism goes bad mm, right mm -hmm. and it Jamel reminded Hill. me yes and it, it reminded me of what we call the SOB defense, save our brother mm, defense. Mm, mm, mm. How can you bring a brother down by talking about him as being a sexual deviant? Don't mm. you know that those are the stereotypes that black men have gotten lynched over? Not so much about whether he did or didn't do it, but yes, even if he did yes. do it, you shouldn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. And then since then, so many other moments when I saw a page out of that book being ripped out and played. So I want to play Save a Brother okay. <laughs> with you. All right. So, so okay, here's, here's one of the moves. When allegations of sexual predation against multiple women catch up with you, you obscure the facts by just saying that these accusations are just you know, opinions, mm -hmm. speculations, mm -hmm. uh, innuendo. So we saw it with Clarence Thomas, R. Kelly. Did mm -hmm. it show up in the Bill Cosby saga? I mean, I think the way in which it, the Saver Brother defense really shows up in the Bill Cosby saga is the way in which people want to say that all the women were white women. Therefore, mm. these are white women trying to bring down a black man. And also, that's what happened to Emmett Till. So Bill Cosby being Emmett Till. It's like the sort of the this sort of like that chess move doesn't work. That pawn <laughs> do the things you're trying to make that pawn do. Yeah. And in doing that, you have to erase not only the presence of black women, mm -hmm. but the experience of black women. I remember when um, we did an event and Beverly Johnson came in and spoke. Yes. So the, the need to see that part of that defense is part of a history of either erasing the sexual abuse of black women intraracially as well as mm -hmm. interracially, mm -hmm. or saying, even if it did happen, your requirement as a black woman mm -hmm. is to shut the heck up about save it. Save our brother. Right? And I think, yeah. To save our brother. I think, and I think the other thing about the Emmett Till thing specifically, because you see it a lot, is you're actually ignoring the power dynamic that existed between Emmett Till and the white women who made up a lie about him and Bill Cosby and any of the survivors. Right. The other one that I felt like I had to get in, which is funny because some of the producers didn't know the story. I was like, just trust me, we have to talk about this, is this was all because he tried to buy NBC. Okay, okay, so here's another SOB. Okay. When creating a story to defend against allegations of sexual abuse, you create a conspiracy angle, yes. no matter how implausible the conspiracy mm -hmm. actually is. So the mm -hmm. Bill Cosby version is... <laughs> is that Bill Cosby tried to buy NBC. <laughs> Executives got so mad at this black man for trying to buy NBC that they, as uh, Jelani Cobb said, got 60 women to lie about him having sexually assaulted them. Mm -hmm. One of the last things we added was Mark Lamont Hill and Jelani Cobb talking about that because I was like, and I had to go to the editor. I go, look, I know you're cutting things out of this right now because we're trying to get to time. But not this. this I was like, I, not only do I need you to keep cutting, I need you to find enough room to put this in. <laughs> like, I need you to find mm -hmm. enough room. And I know it, mm -hmm. and, and she was great about it, but she had never heard the story. I was like, I know, but trust me. Well, let me just throw one more. There's several, but um, when all else fails, 
double down and authenticate yourself as a victim who warrants sympathy, not blame. I mean, this, I think there's an aspect of like, and you see this through his spokespeople. When the doc came out, Bill Cosby's spokesperson sent out a, a press release that first of all called me a PR hack, which I'd never thought it'd be called, but, so, but talked about how Bill Cosby is a defender of democracy. Ooh. And Bill Cosby is always uplifts the people and has always throughout his career uplifted people. And again, some of this stuff is true if you look at it without knowing that multiple things can be true mm -hmm. and sort of point to all the things he has done to support black people. Why would he have done these other things? You know, yeah. so I think that yeah. like there's yeah. and I think yeah. some of this also connects to the pound cake speech, which is exactly where I, I want to go. Yeah. Right. The pound cake speech. I will say on the, the sympathy, I also, you know, even I felt it. Right. When, you know, you saw him going into prison yes. and he's walking and he can't see and stuff, you know, until I realized, oh, wait, they did this with R. Kelly when he was yeah, crying yeah. and they did it with Clarence Thomas when he was, you know, up yeah. from poor black Southern family. It's a classic mob movie, like the the mob boss who suddenly has an oxygen tank and is in a wheelchair. Yes, talk, and yes. then, you know, once the trial's over, they're dancing in the front of the court. They're back. So let's talk about the pound cake speech, because I think that's probably another piece of the story that folks outside the black community are not fully aware of. And I For bet sure. they also don't recognize the role it played in the legal part of it, right? This guy who is the moral the arbiter the of mor black America, yeah. and then he's doing this other stuff. So, so talk about how you, you approach the pound cake speech. I will say, having witnessed and been part of the outrage about how yeah. Brown versus Board of Education was going to be commemorated by Bill Cosby basically doing the pound cake speech. That was kind of it for me. Oh, I was yeah. I was kind of done with That's, him. That, a lot, I think a lot. But of people, that was like it. Yeah, I think a lot of especially black folks who had who who had been through the whole thing with Bill up to that point were like, "This is where you're going now." Yeah. So yeah. I, for me, as somebody who was younger, I think I was just heartbroken by the pound cake speech. Just like and just, and just give people a sense of some of the stuff that he said in that speech. If a white person had said that yeah. stuff. People yeah. would have called it straight out racist. Yeah, so the pound cake speech that he said at an NAACP event to to commemorate Brown versus the Board of Education, he, he attacks specifically black moms about the ways in which they're letting the community down by not being good moms to their sons, specifically their sons. It's all about the sons. And, Always. And the fa it's called the pound cake speech because he talks about a black man stealing a piece of pound cake and getting shot and killed by the police and the community shows up like, why did you shoot him? And Bill Cosby goes, what's, what's he doing with the pound cake? cake? These are not political criminals. These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola. People getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. And then we all run out and we're outraged. Oh, the cops shouldn't have shot him. Yeah, how was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? And it was a punchline. Like, there's people in the crowd who actually do laugh and clap because it is like, there's a strain of black conservatism among some of these organizations. Deep in yeah, Especially at the yeah. galas at this level. And it becomes a thing where he's like, it's about like how black moms are naming their kids with these weird names. One of the weird names he says is Muhammad, which blows my mind considering that that's the name yeah. of one of the most famous yeah. black men in the icons in the history of the earth. And he's sort of like really like a screed and he's pointing his screed at black women, black moms and how they have let the community down and how basically it's the lift yourself up by your bootstrap speech. And in particular, it is an allegation of sexual immorality and irresponsibility yes. that's bringing our, our black community down. So it's racist, but it's misogynoir yes. at the same time, because of course, you know, men doing that stuff is, is one thing, but these black mm -hmm. women are basically dropping babies, naming them stuff we can't mm -hmm. pronounce, and then they don't even know who their fathers are. It was yeah. like, you take the Moynihan report, mm -hmm. which, you know, came out in the 60s to basically say, there's only so much that we're gonna be able to do to address racial inequality, because at the end of the day, it's basically because your families are yeah. jacked up. Your men don't know how to be men. Your women don't yeah. need know how to be women. And until that happens, you can't expect to be treated equally. This now becomes the sermon that's given on the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. So here you have a black, well-loved And also comedian. wealthy. 
extraordinarily yeah, I think that's the part of it right. too because I felt like you were on high looking down on the people and you've stayed on high when it when yeah. it comes to getting involved really in politics right yeah. straight up politics that was Sidney Poitier that was Harry, Harry Belafonte mm -hmm. he wasn't out there no. you know on those uh, those civil rights marches so for him to come back 50 years later cast you know responsibility for inequality on black families and black women in particular it was like how the hell and so then when it turns out while he's preaching you know against immorality of black women he is mm. doing this other thing yeah so it's the hypocrisy yes that actually played a greater role in bringing him down than people are aware of right yes i think the reason why it happened i think is because people couldn't as i think jelani cops says, countenance the gap between who we believed you were who you told us you were who you told us to be and who you really were behind the scenes. So I think people yeah, could, like, yeah. that was too much. I mean, you know, there's no comparison between these two as far as what they've been accused of. But, I mean, I always think about Richard Pryor told you he was a flawed individual the whole time. <laughs> like, yeah. And there's, and there's, I'm not trying to compare what their lives, but I'm saying Richard Pryor was clear that, like, I am a broken person. Whereas Cosby wanted you to believe he was Superman. He was above it. And yeah. this is what's interesting about the actual release of the testimony that he gave in the deposition, right? Because mm -hmm. when he admitted to giving quaaludes to women in order to have sex, and this is at the core uh, of his release, it's not because there was a finding that he didn't do that. It was mm -hmm. whether this testimony that he gave should have been released yeah. and used to prosecute him. But the reason it got released was uh, Associated Press basically said, look, here's this guy who's preaching this stuff on one hand, and he's doing this stuff on the other hand, he shouldn't be able to hide, you know, this contradiction, his own depravity behind, you know, this uh, veil Shame. of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it is a rare case when somebody's hubris, when someone's, yeah. I can walk on water, you know, becomes the sort of first step in his downfall. I mean, it's a bigger story about the big man falleth on his own. <laughs> yes, know? yes. Hoist on your own petard. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Michael Cord, who's a lawyer from Philly who was in the dock, talks about the idea of like, you only get that deal if you're a person of immense privilege and wealth. You only get the say whatever you want to say, we won't prosecute you if you're a person that the law respects as like, you know, Will Will Cosby from North Philly, who's a janitor, or not forget a janitor, who works in an office, doesn't get that deal. Yeah, yeah. The prosecutor in Montgomery County told Bill Cosby, hey, we're going to protect your rights against self-incrimination. We are going to, in effect, give you immunity. So you can say anything you want about anything you did, and I'm telling you, Mr. Cosby, nothing you say will be used against you. In fact, you don't have to worry about it being used against you because we're never going to prosecute you. And then the next person comes in, who's a Trump guy, basically like wants to make a point of releasing Bill Cosby. So it's mm -hmm. like, again, it's like the law being an imperfect instrument of justice. Yes, absolutely. And it's important to be able to say the story that we're telling about Cosby and his release is not a story that the average black person can ever tell. That's not what no. this is about. No. And at the same time, it's a story that black women, you know, know too well. I really liked your interviews with Karen and in particular, and I wanted to come back to you as a person in the media. When uh, Karen Mayo uh, published the ebony cover with yes. the broken image uh, yeah. of the Huxtables, all hell broke loose. I <laughs> yes, mean, yes, I yes. remember that yes. like it was yesterday. First of all, I said, yeah, that yeah. is amazing. And yeah. I was like, they gonna get in trouble. Ooh, so, you know, one of the things that I was wondering, because I'm sure you probably can amplify how she felt. Um, she talked about how so many of the readerships that said, look, the role of Ebony magazine is mm -hmm. to uplift. Mm -hmm. It is to put black excellence on display. It is not to engage in critique. It's not to raise the hard and difficult questions, right? And mm -hmm. she and you are operating under a sort of different sense of what black representation, 
entails. How did you resonate with her story and how does it shape how you think about what you're doing in United Shades, yeah. which we're going to talk about Yeah. Now. Well, so I think like I, uh, we actually, inter- I think the key thing about her is that we actually interviewed her. Her interview happened after Cosby got out of prison. So she had a very different calculus than the people who had agreed to do it when Cosby was still in prison. Mm-hmm. Because there was a sense that he's in prison, he's going to be in there forever, he might die in there. We can all talk about this freely. But she had to decide, now that he's out, do I want to enter into this discussion? And she'd also gone through uh, the Russell Simmons doc and, and yes. how that had all, like, you know. And so that was, was big controversy. Yeah, and Huge. so, but I think it get, I give her so much credit for showing up because she knew what she was getting into. And it really felt like, you know, we were just, everything we did, she was like, she, mic drop, mic drop, mic drop, mm-hmm. mic drop. Mm-hmm. Kierna made a choice of like, we can't act like this isn't happening because that doesn't benefit any of us. And especially with sexual assault in this country, as you know, we have always done a bad job of dealing with sexual assault and rape no matter who, the, and if you talk about, then you go to black women, at the job, we do a worse job of it. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to acknowledge, too, that part of the trauma that is perhaps at some level in the mix on how we think about this story, Cosby's story, is the extent to which racism may have touched his own family. And, you know, mm-hmm. we realize that some of this came in the aftermath of his son, Ennis, being mm-hmm. killed. Um, by an 18-year-old immigrant from the Ukraine, which is very, very tragic. You know, on my way home, I go by the spot where he was murdered, and Mm. there's not a day that I don't see it. And think about that, that tragedy. Think about what it means to have raised a child and have the resources to give him the best, but not the ability to protect him against being seen as a target. And so I always, you know, think on some level, the um, disciplinary attitude that gets taken to black people as a whole can sometimes be a reaction to the sense that we as a group have these negative stereotypes around us. And what we have to do is behave and perform differently in order to protect ourselves. And, you know, that, of course, is a hopeless Uh, a way of of thinking about racism. And so on that, I just want to take our last couple minutes together to talk about United Shades. (laughs) I was really excited to be on uh, the show. So tell us about what you're doing this season and in particular, what was compelling about the topic that we have been talking about on your show. Well, I mean, first of all, we've been working on trying to get you on the show for not this isn't the first time we tried to figure it out. So you have been on our list of like people we need and we could pretty much book you for any topic and you would have something to say about it. So, I mean, I think every season I feel like the news gives the United Shades homework assignments. And one of the homework assignments this season is the attack on schools, the ways in which people who have no kids in any school want to determine what kids are learning. And they can't say, we don't want our kids to be taught an accurate history. So what they say instead is, America's gotten too woke, and we don't want our kids to be taught woke history. If we can't teach kids about Native American genocide and an accurate history about the life of enslaved people, if we can't teach accurate histories of this, Trump's going to look like one of the last smart presidents. Yeah, whoa. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that, that was so refreshing about being in conversation with you about it is so much of the media in response to this attack, this anti wokeness, this response to the tremendous outpouring after the murder of George Floyd was to basically come at us and say, what is it about critical race theory that makes people so upset? And in doing so, the media, they they became an extension of the finger pointing of the faction that's pretty well funded, that basically couldn't say, as you said, we don't want them learning about our racial history. We don't want them learning about enslavement and genocides, but we can't say that. We're gonna call it wokeness. We're gonna call it critical race theory. theory. There's no, there was almost no willingness to turn the gaze and look back at where Mm -hmm. this stuff is coming from. Mm -hmm. And we, we have been pulling out our hair about this, right? Because if you don't really report, if you don't really examine, if you don't really go to see that actually this is not a groundswell against critical race theory, this is a pushback 
against just basic anti-racism, basic telling the truth about our history. If you don't tell that story, you're part of the problem. Yes. Why is it that you are among the few that really is reporting it? I like to think my show is basically, I remember those, I mean, they still exist, I'm sure, but I remember when I was growing up, like they would give the local black reporter the Sunday morning at 7 a.m. slot. That's right, that's right, exactly. <laughs> and they had a show called yeah. like Issues. Issues. Or <laughs> the, Urban Talk. Urban <laughs> Talk, yeah. And that's when they would be, okay, we got an hour to cover all things. <laughs> like, and I also think it comes from, I mean, you know, give credit where credit is due because I'm sure she's listening to this because she's a fan of yours. I give credit to my mom, who is Janet Cheatham Bell, not Janet Bell. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, All right. she, her name is Janet Another Cheatham Bell. Another fierce no, Janet Bell. Yes, exactly. For sure. Who just raised me to, like, have a critical eye on things. And I was an only child, so I was around oh. adults having adult conversations and black folks having grown-up conversation. And I was born in the early 70s, so this is post right out of the civil rights movement. And they were like... It's better, but it ain't that much better. You know what I mean? So yeah, there was just this yeah. sense of like, I was always around those. And I learned very early on, the more you shut up and listen, the more you'll learn. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that for me, United Shades, a lot of times people are like, how do you just sit there and listen to people? Because that's the best way to learn stuff. Even if you don't agree with them, at least I'm going to sit here and let you get all of it out. I'm going to get all of it out. So like in the episode that we did with you, I also met with like a group of people, two of whom were like people who were showing up to the school board meetings with their opinions about what kids should be taught. Don't have kids, don't have grandkids. Yeah. This one man said he was like, schools are doing too much. Like, what do you mean by that? Schools, well, they're just getting involved in too many aspects of people of the kids' lives and they're taking away things that parents should be doing. Like what? I don't know, like feeding kids breakfast and lunch. A person who's not me might just yell at this man or walk away from this man, or because at that point is ridiculous and I feel comfortable yeah. saying that. But I was like, are you telling me that if a kid shows up to school hungry, we shouldn't feed we them. shouldn't feed that child because i can tell you that every teacher in the world will tell you you can't teach, teach a hungry a child. child yes i get right. that there maybe is a problem that there is a problem that that kid shows up hungry that's we can address that too as, in a separate discussion but you're telling me that we shouldn't feed a hungry child so i am so excited to see this episode because telling people look there's a deeper agenda here mm -hmm. this is an attack on public institutions it's an attack on public education it's an attack on the way that education actually is creating citizens that are mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. fit for a society that is formally committed to multiracial uh democracy this is an attack on all of that and we need people to actually go to those places and, and, and see what people are actually saying. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the episode, Kamal. I had such a good time. I could talk to you forever. We did, we did this on the set. You know, they had to come and get rid of us. Um, I want to thank you for your work. I used to say the colored on TV. Now we're having discourse on TV, right? You know, something real, something yeah, that people yeah. can talk about. So leave us with a final thought. We're in a real complicated time right now, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, war everywhere. It looks like it's unending. And at the same time, this Cold War in our own country is not one that's going to resolve itself soon. I mean, we just heard uh, Trump the other day say something about the fate of the nation depends on the willingness of some to lay down their very lives to defend this country as a, you know, sort of call to arms against uh, critical race theory. And obviously yes. that's not just critical race theory, it's sort of racial justice writ large. Yes. Yeah, so what are you seeing in the you know near future and, and how are you imagining your work navigating yeah. in the middle of all that? Well, it's funny when I hear Trump say defend this country, let's be clear, he's defining this country as himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He means defend me from going to prison. Yeah. He ain't talking about, yeah. So for me, I think that like, so I have three kids, 10, seven, and three and a half. And I think about when I was a kid, whatever the civil rights movement did or didn't accomplish, I feel like by the time my mom handed me the baton, it was lighter than when it was handed to her. Absolutely. And so for me, I feel like I'm in this position of like, I might be handing a heavier baton to my kids. We always think it's gonna get better. I think we're at a place where it's like, it might not get better, it might get markedly worse. Yeah, yeah. We're looking at Ukraine like, I can't imagine that. And it's like, it may not be a Russian invasion, but we may look up and be in similar positions as the Ukrainian folks right now running around trying to figure out, how do I live, how do I get through the day? Yeah, yeah. So when I'm doing this work, it's like, it's, it's bigger than just the work that I wanna do. 
the only way I got to the Cosby thing is because I felt compelled to do it beyond logic. And I feel like that is going to be always a part of my career. I think doing telling stories that I'm compelled by on logic to understand. And I think the thing that I feel pressure to do is make sure that it is clearer how to help. I think that's the other thing. It's not just about like, look at this sad story over here. It's clear about like, how can you who's watching this get involved? Yeah. Well, if we are uh, to avoid, you know, a lot of people say, can it happen here? Mm-hmm. A backwards slide into authoritarianism and into, you know, unmitigated tyranny. It has happened here. I mean, this is a part yes. of our story and it's part of the story that many people don't want uh, to be told. So if we are going to interrupt that backwards side, it is because people like you are doing the important work in public education, showing people the pieces of the story that they're not seeing, and importantly, telling people what they can do to interrupt, to tell a different uh, narrative of who we are and where we're going. Thank you, W. Kamal Bell, for spending an hour with us on Intersectionality wow. Matters. It was such a pleasure, and we could talk forever, and let's do it again soon. Yeah, now hold on. I'm not going to let you just say all those nice things about me and not say, and I couldn't do this work without you. I mean, you know, living in the Bay Area, people use the word intersectionality the way people use hot sauce in the <laughs> South. But I will say, like, I couldn't do this without – the thing that I think I have going for me is curiosity. Like, I'm just curious about everything. And to have your work put before me and have people in my life who help me sort of understand your work. And this is an, it's been an honor to talk to you. It's an honor to keep talking to you. And I feel very special and, and fa- highly favored that you would spend time with me. Oh, well, you know what? That is a gift that keeps giving. So we're going to call you up <laughs> next okay, season. What yeah. you got going on over there? That, I understand <laughs> with some people that when you when you come into their life, you're enlisting into their uh, <laughs> so I'm an, <laughs> I'm enlisting in service, so I'm here for you. Glad you saw the fine print. Thanks so much. Yes, I did. <laughs> Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp-Levine. This episode was co-produced by Ashley Julian, with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Hi, Intersectionality Matters listeners. This is Anita Hill. On my new podcast, I tackle tough questions about equality and what it takes to get there. In dynamic, thought-provoking interviews, you'll hear from guests on the front lines of improving our imperfect world and finding solutions. I sit down with Kimberly Crenshaw to discuss the battle over curricula, its impact on students, and the political co-opting of critical race theory. You can hear the entire episode and others by searching for Getting Even wherever you get your podcasts. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.